You're listening to Hallway Talks with Luisa and Ria. This week, we have a very special guest, NYU Wagner alum, Liba Bayer. Liba has spent 18 years at the Human Rights Watch and is currently their director of global advocacy campaigns. Liba has worked previously at the United Nations Association, the Hillel Foundation, and 9-11 Disaster Relief Fund. She talks to us about her work at the Human Rights Watch Persuasion Lab and how to communicate key human rights issues to a mass audience in our ever-crowded information world. So sit back, grab some coffee, and get ready to learn how to sell vegetables in a world of candy. Recorded November 3rd, 2020. Thank you so much for being here, Liva. So to start off with, we were watching a talk that you were giving, and in that you were talking about communicating human rights. And you mentioned that it was like trying to sell vegetables in a world of candy. And I think that's such a succinct sentence. Could you elaborate on it? Sure. And thank you both so much. I'm so excited to be with you. And it's so fantastic to meet Wagner students. Um, uh, Really, you know, grabbing the public attention for social change and for human rights is the ultimate challenge. And what I, you know, I oversee a persuasion lab at Human Rights Watch. Um, And I tell people that anyone who's working for social change, they have to be skilled at persuasion, no matter what, we're always trying to persuade people. And if you want attention and you want to be able to persuade people, you have to engage them in creative content. And I think we all know that we could go down the rabbit hole of hours of uh, candy on TikTok videos and on um, YouTube shorts and binge watch anything to our heart's delight, not only because it is delicious, but um, literally there are technologists, psychologists, um, neuroscientists who work at making all of that content actually addictive. And so what we need to do is we need to match those techniques and utilize those tools and become the best communicators we can. And a big part of that is um, this idea of hope-based communications and making sure that the content that we share and when we're trying to engage people in human rights and social change, um, that it is attracting people, not deflating and uh, demoralizing and depressing people because you know what what do, what do you want uh, for dessert? Do you more vegetables or you want candy? I love that you mentioned conveying the message without demoralizing people. I'm very passionate about climate change, and one of the things that I always think about this is how you you talk to people about the impending apocalypse, right? How do you make this something that they yes. want to hear? But what I want to ask you about now, you mentioned Persuasion Lab. Yeah. And this sounds so interesting. When we were listening to one of your talks, you describe it as creating a meta narrative for human rights. Yeah. What do you mean by that? What's the Persuasion Lab? How did it all begin? Where it's go- is it going? Sure. So I think that uh, you all and most of your listeners probably know that Human Rights Watch is one of the leading human rights advocacy organizations in the world. And we have traditionally been a very grass tops organization. Our methodology and our theory of change is really about 
um, doing investigations, deep and um, objective investigations by experts in 90 some countries around the world, exposing those through traditional media and social media. Um, and then all of that is in service of the change of the advocacy. But the advocacy has traditionally been done direct to policymakers or through their proxies. And we have really unprecedented government access to do that. I think that we know, like most people know, that uh, the gatekeepers of public opinion used to be the media. Um, and with social media and messaging and targeting um, and the marketing of politics, that has really shifted. And now organizations and causes need to go direct to the public and to engage the public in order to actually make change. So we work on campaigning on specific issues, but the Persuasion Lab started out of a real long-term view that with the rise of populist leaders and authoritarians around the world and the popularization of those, of those strongmen, we are lost the hearts and minds of so many people around the world about human rights values. So returning to those values and leading with, uh, we like to say for the Persuasion Lab and, and others that issues divide people and values unite people. Uh, I'll give you the best example of that, which is in the fight for to abolish the death penalty in the United States. The progressives and leftists always uh, will argue that, well, the death penalty doesn't work. And so we're trying to combat that policy by telling people that, well, it doesn't mitigate crime and we can show you these statistics. But what I've already done there is I've already put myself into the narrative and the framework of the right. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the death penalty. I'm just saying that it doesn't work. But if you want to lead with values, if you are against the death penalty, what's the value that you're actually for? Well, the value that I'm for is second chances. So if I start with that, with the public, with journalists, with policy targets and say, I'm for second chances, you're for second chances, can't we come around to that um, when it comes to the death penalty? And that's exactly what we're seeing over and over in campaigns that are successful in shifting the messaging and the framing narratives um, for important issues of the day. So. That is exactly the frame that was used in Florida uh, two, two, three years ago um, to win voting restoration for returning citizens, formerly incarcerated people who had been revoked the right to vote indefinitely. And there was a very successful campaign run on second chances and they managed to, they managed to pass that, um, which was really incredible. So what we do at the Persuasion Lab is we are trying to figure out the values, the tactics, the tools um, that will move these middle audiences, purple audiences on human rights values. So how can we move them along the spectrum to be um, more aligned with human rights values? You know, it's so interesting that you're talking about communicating human rights in this world where we are seeing rising trend of right-wing leaders across the world. In one of your talks, I remember you saying, think about the relative at the dining table who is a Bolsonaro supporter, Netanyahu supporter, Trump supporter, Modi supporter, and communicating to that family member your values. 
And then now imagine that as a global digital campaign, how difficult would it be to have that conversation without that personal connection even yes exactly exactly and it seems like the persuasion lab is finding an approach and a strategy to actually get there so one of the things that you mentioned was in in one of the literatures that we read about you um you mentioned neutralize socialize Mm -hmm. and mobilize uh, as an approach could you elaborate on what that is yeah so Anytime I'm working on a campaign, a communications campaign or an online advocacy campaign, the first thing we do is we really unpack the theory of change and we figure out what is your ultimate vision? What are you trying to achieve? Who are the people who have the power to enact that? Um, And then what are the tactics to reach that person? Where do they live? What do they read? What do they watch, et cetera? who are the levers to get to that person and who are the obstacles. So uh, we have to then figure out sort of how we um, approach them, who are the allies, who's important to them. And then in mobilizing those people, what are the messages that are gonna make the most sense to them? So what it all comes down to, once you've figured out your theory of change, you really have to focus on audience. And I think audience is one area that, that I see nonprofits and the left ignore over and over. And so many meetings I'm in, I'm constantly raising the flag and saying, but who's your audience? Who's the audience? What do they care about? What are their values? Um, What messages are going to resonate with them? And again, what messages are going to turn them off? So we have, I mean, we're in such an exciting time for campaigning and, and strategic communications because we have so many more tools available to us. We can do so much audience listening. You know, in the matter of an hour, I can do a digital poll cheaply and scientifically to figure out, you know, what non-college educated white women in the United States feel about healthcare. And then I can start testing those things and I can start creating content and really comparing, am I achieving that value and am I going to drive them towards it? So when I think about audience, the first thing we have to, we have to figure out is where are they? So um, I, I really think about it as a spectrum. So, you know, all the way to the right, you have the the rights lovers, and then all the way to the left, you have the rights haters. And we are trying to neutralize the people all the way to the left. We're trying to socialize the people in the middle to human rights values and mobilize the right. So when you're starting on a campaign or you're starting to try to move people and persuade people to your issues, you have to think about where is my audience starting from? Are they a base audience? Do they already support the issue and the values that you're trying to promote? And all you have to do is mobilize them. So what's going to get them jazzed up and energized in order to take those actions? Or do they need education and total socializing to it? And you need an approach that starts with your shared values instead of trying to cram down the throat. So um, this really does come back to that hope-based communications. And what I want to say is that uh, everyone should follow Thomas Coombs, um, who created hope-based communications and methodology, and Anat Shankar Osorio, who also has a fabulous podcast. She is really a goddess and a guru of um, messaging and narrative change. And what so much of our Persuasion Lab has come to is this hope-based, this technique of hope-based communications. Once you realize and understand what it is, you start to see it everywhere. So if you scroll down the feed of your favorite cause and NGO, you will see the nightmare of human rights. You will see 
the victimhood, you will see uh, the torture, the abuses, you will see a spotlight on what's wrong. Um, instead of what we need to be talking more about is the dream. We need to be proposing what is the dream and the vision that we want. So this idea of hope-based communications is really a practice that anybody can do. And once you try it out, you, you'll really, it really unveils itself. So it's making five shifts. So the first shift is going from what you are against to what you're for. So we're constantly talking about policy change in terms of what we are against, but what we need to be sharing is standing is, is what you actually stand for. The second shift is going from fear to hope. So what we know is that when you talk about fear and talk about the dangers of the world, you trigger up the lower part of the brain, which makes people reticent to others, makes people vote more conservatively, literally makes your ear canal close to more rational thought. But when you trigger the upper part of the brain, the part of the brain that controls empathy um, or joy, that's when you get people to be more welcoming, more compassionate, more understanding of, uh, of others. So what are we trying to actually trigger in people? The fear or the hope. The, the third shift is going from the problem to the solution, being extremely specifically solutions oriented and making sure that those solutions are realistic, achievable, and believable. Um, the fourth is going from threat to opportunity. If I ask you to change any threat in the world that you see, including COVID, we have seen over and over that COVID provides an unbelievable opportunity to disrupt the systems in the world that we've created from economic systems, social systems, health systems, education systems. Um, so you would need to be talking about the opportunity if you want to move people. And lastly, from talking about victims to talking about heroes and making the people who are working for change at the center of these stories. And the last thing I'll say about that is just that if folks have seen that movie Inside Out and you've seen the, the characters on Inside Out, right? Um, what are, who are the characters? You've got anger, uh, you've got uh, fear, sadness, uh, sadness, <laughs> uh, disgust, and joy, of course, right? Yeah. So when we apply social listening tools to Facebook and we, uh, and we pair it with human rights, um, what is the sentiment that comes out of that? So, you know, we're putting in the equation of social listening, human rights plus what emotion do we see on Facebook? And overwhelmingly dominant, the emotion that we see is disgust. And so this comes back to sort of not alienating and depressing people. Like, who do you want to join? A winning team or someone who is constantly sort of conveying disgust? Wow. You know what? When I, I mentioned to you that I... I had a previous master's back in Brazil in constitutional law. And when I was doing that master a long time ago, um, there was someone from an American university, I actually forgot, that came in to do a talk. And he was the one that was actually doing this study, this research, actually became quite famous nowadays 
about how people that are more easily disgusted tend to go to be more conservative in politics and people that are less affected by gore and tend to be more left-leaning and more progressive politically. Absolutely. And yeah. we see that over and over. We saw that in um, the in the last two French elections. We saw that in the Brexit vote. I can show you the diagrams that show that people who are optimistic about their lives versus pessimistic about their lives um, the optimists predominantly voted for progressive parties and um, and for liberal, you know, politics. Yeah, but um, there's a lot to unpack in, the, in your answer. But one thing that I found really interesting and I would love to hear more about you is what tools are available right now for the kind of work that you are doing? Uh, you mentioned polls. I think I can speak for all of us when we say that during this last American elections, we were all refreshing Nate Silver's tweets. But you also mentioned social media and Facebook and all this mm -hmm. analytics. And nowadays you can really narrow down exactly who is looking at your posts, who is sharing it. How do you make use of all these tools, all this technology right now? What really works? What is just, you know, snake oil? What are your thoughts yes. on all this? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I could go through a bunch of different tools that we use, but I think I would start it by just saying there's a, with one, you know, landmine to avoid and two opportunities to lean into. So, perfect. <laughs> let me summarize it that way, which is to say the landmine to avoid is um, vanity metrics. And uh, you know, going down a rabbit hole of data that is not unfortunately even realistic in the nimble and resource um, resource short NGO sector. So you can get lost in big data till the cows come home if you are, you know, if you're if you're into that. If you're like a super um, data geek, which I love me some data geeks, then you can really get into that. But on a practical front, you've got to move quickly. You've got to be responsive and you've got to be like adaptable. So um, I really think that, uh, and you know, and, and the other landmine is really about the vanity metrics. So I think that it's much more sophisticated and understood now by campaigners and younger organizations that, you know, likes and shares and your inflated numbers of reach are one very small piece of the picture. And when you're trying to evaluate your campaigns and the impact that you're having, you really have to look holistically and you have to have a holistic uh, advocacy strategy that entails more than just social media reach, right? You need a media strategy. You need a person-to-person grass-tops advocacy strategy. Like you need all of these things um, and you know, when I started doing digital campaigning uh, almost 10 years ago, I did a competitive review and I called 30 of what I thought were the smartest net roots organizations around, the people doing the best online advocacy I could think of. And I asked all of them, can you have real world impact doing digital campaigning? And what came out of that survey over and over was that I was asking the wrong question, that the question asking if you can have impact using online activism is like asking if you can have impact using the telephone. It is part of a sophisticated strategy. 
Who are you calling? Who's picking up? What are you saying? Who's calling after you? All of these things, right? So that's really where I would put the vanity metrics and some of that data. Um, but where I see the opportunities are a fewfold. So number one is that anyone who wants to work on social change, especially digital in digital communications, needs to have a crash course in marketing. So much of this is about marketing. And we're not taking enough of those tools and what we can learn from, um, from uh, business and private sector marketing to make sure that we know how to do this. And that includes ads, you know, running ads, if you're micro-targeting, if you're running programmatic ads, you have to have a strategy for distribution. So one of my new colleagues is constantly reminding me that, you know, you need to spend two thirds of your budget on distribution. So everybody wants to spend, you know, $5,000, $10,000 on a big creative video and have nothing left for distribution. Make a shoddier, more authentic, raw video and spend all your money on distribution, on getting it in front of the people's faces, right? Um, and I, the, the second opportunity is that we often try to come up with all the answers ourselves when there are so many, when you talk about polling, social science and research, there are so many resources out there. If you're gonna work on immigration or refugee rights, for example, there is no way that you need to do hardly any testing yourself. It's true that these things are iterative and they can change quickly, public opinion can change, but there are so many organizations out there who have done fantastic work on the framing and message narratives that work around immigration and refugee rights. So you should go and do the research and look there first before you try to start, why don't we get in a room and brainstorm what would be a good video on refugee rights? Again, so much to unpack. You give us so much information with each answer. Um, but yeah, you, you said it was an issue I'm passionate about. I'm super <laughs> We love it. We absolutely love it. Um, you talked about big data. and. Yeah. Louisa and I are both data nerds. I think at Wagner, you'll find a lot of them. And the challenge with data and human rights is there is a lot of focus on evidence-based policymaking, evidence-based mm. campaigning, just using evidence to support any sort of human rights advocacy. Uh, and then I guess the other side of that coin is people find data boring and heavy, and it's difficult to communicate data. So how do you find the, the line between those to make data compelling and easily uh, consumable by an audience? Mm -hmm. And also, is there a difference between communicating that for a mass audience and communicating that for, let's say, donors or other stakeholders who you are advocating for more personally? Yeah. So um, I, I think it comes back to sort of that theory of change and what exactly why are you trying to communicate the data and, and to whom? So uh, I would very infrequently try to communicate data to a mass audience because it's not going to stick. It's not gonna be salient, you know? So what you want to stick is an emotion or a value. Again, what is going to mobilize them, neutralize them or socialize them? And in most cases, it's not gonna be the data. And uh, I could also, you know, sort of give you some examples of infographics and so on that we think communicates one thing, but can often actually reinforce the other side and the other narrative. You know, that really comes back to a lot of um, immigration data. Um, so when you look at the sort of flows of immigration, 
and people say, oh, see, like it's not a crisis. Compare these, you know, these flows from the years. But actually, you're just reminding people that there are flows of people coming in. And so you're actually just um, you're reinforcing people's biases with a lot of data. So that's where some of my concerns might lie. That's such being, a good point. Data is yeah. really about, you know, making those policy choices and deciding what you're going to push for, not necessarily how you push for it. So, uh, you know, I mentioned immigration a few times, and one of the things we did in our persuasion lab is we, we, we came around to an audience of targeting, you know, white women who were not college educated um, on immigration issues and doing some listening around those values. And the reason that we chose them is for reach, um, influence, and impact. So those were all data-driven decisions. You know, the reach we're talking about. You know, more than 20 million women in the United States, particularly in in swing states and and the ones that could be moved, right? And then on their persuadability, we tested how movable they were. And they were one of the most movable audiences that could go from skeptical to more neutral on immigration issues. And on influence, they were credited for shifting the midterm elections. And after African-American women without college degrees, they were the second most targeted by the Russians in the 2016 election. So that's how like, you make a data-driven decision on who we're gonna focus on, on trying to persuade on an issue and, and the importance. Um, but then I'm going to talk to them about values and what's going to move them. I love that you mentioned immigration so many times in terms of convey message. I did a summer internship with the IRC this semester, and it was a data internship. And my boss, she would always say to me when I show like her any kind of data, she was like, what exactly do you want me to do with it? If you don't have a good answer for that, I don't care about this data. And I, it uh, actually... It was so helpful to understand how to use data and when to use data. Well, it's hard too because, you know, as a human rights you know, movement, obviously we work so much on immigration refugees. We work on so many other things. But again, you know, uh, we did a, a project with the University of Minnesota where they did a large scale public listening project for us on what are American values on human rights. And that study, along with so many others, have showed us over and over that, you know, the predominant thinking in the United States and actually in Europe as well, is that human rights are for the other. They're for marginalized communities. Therefore, would-be terrorists and prisoners and sad refugees, et cetera. And so that's, again, where the persuasion and socializing this middle comes in. And so we did a large project called, and it's still going on, called Human Family. And the idea is to make people self-actualize around human rights and make people self-identify and take literally a selfie with a, a offline, uh, an offline installation around human family to say, I'm a member of the human family. And as a member of the human family, these are my rights. So we really have to move people. So when I, I have internal staff who come to me wanting to do persuasion around immigration refugees, and the truth is, it's not the time to do it. It's the last thing I want to work on, because if you want to move people on human rights values, um, people who are in the middle or indifferent or have skepticism, you don't want to talk to them about a polarizing issue that they pretty much have their mind up. You want to start with what you share. 
I love that you mentioned that this is the last uh, subject that you want to work with because it's a great hook for our last question here as we yeah. unfortunately start to close this interview. Sure. If this is the last topic that you want to work with, what's the first, what's the topic right now, the human crisis going on right now that if you had a superpower to make everyone pay attention to it, if you could make like some change, what's the topic that you're passionate about and how would you do it? How would you do this campaign for us? Oh gosh. <laughs> Easy question. One. Am I getting a grade on this one? Okay. Of course, always <laughs> for this whole interview. All right, well, um, Okay, I hope it's not a cop-out, but it's not a, as much a specific issue as like the one topic, if I only had to work on, I think I would work on, on faith. Like I want people to have faith that change is possible. And when I talk about hope-based, like it's not about being rosy or naive, it's about believing that change is possible. And if, I mean, you've seen from the voter, uh, voter campaigns, getting people to vote, if people believe change is possible, people will engage. And that's all I need and want is for people to engage in social change. You got an A plus for this. Answer <laughs> for Thank goodness. <laughs> you know, I don't know that I did that well when I was at Wagner. But anyway. <laughs> you know, when, when we tell people that we're working in things like public service, development, human rights, I feel like a lot of people who are not in the sector and are outsiders to the sector think that it's this, you know, bleeding heart, uh, very like, you know, naive kind of space where only people who care about, uh, you know, flowers and rainbows and making change and things like that. <laughs> I love that you talk like somebody who's applying science, you're applying so much logic, so much scientific thought and data and private yeah. sector strategies of marketing to something like human rights. It's amazing to hear. Totally. Interdisciplinary and, uh, and, and uh, intersectional. It has to be. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this. Honestly, I feel, like, guys. I feel like we just had a class in human rights advocacy. <laughs> I love it. Anytime. <laughs>